1: Welcome to Pax Britannica, episode 40, Providence Gained. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time, we looked at the theological divisions within English society, and how this motivated the hotter sort of Protestant, the godly, the elect, or, in the language of their critics, and the name by which they are commonly known, the Puritans, to migrate in their thousands to the New World. Most arrived at Massachusetts Bay, and the nearby regions, and put down routes. We saw how, in the political sphere, the colony developed a remarkably representative form of government, and in the religious sphere, how uniformity and good morals were a central part of New England life. As we left off, though, I hinted that there was trouble in paradise, and indeed there was. The unity of the colony would split over theological issues religious toleration was not the aim of the Puritan leadership. That they had been persecuted for their beliefs didn't mean they weren't willing to persecute others for theirs. In many ways, their self-belief and their confidence that they were correct and that others were dangerously wrong was very similar to their own persecutors in Charles's government. One of the first challenges to the religious status quo of the MBC came from a church minister, Roger Williams. Williams had arrived in Massachusetts in 1631, and he was heartily welcomed by the colonial leadership, including John Winthrop. Williams had a reputation for godliness and for piety, and after spending some time in Boston, the position of minister became temporarily vacant. Naturally, Williams was invited to take the position, which was quite a privilege. He would be one of the most influential people in the colony. So it must have been quite a surprise for the Bostonians when Williams declined the offer. Why? Well, for two reasons mainly. Firstly, because the Boston church was not separatist. Williams was. And for him to take up the appointment, he would require his church to be so too. Secondly, Williams believed the government of the colony overstepped its bounds. In Calvinist doctrine, the Ten Commandments were viewed as two groups, or tables. The first dictated a person's relationship with God, and the second dictated a person's relationship with other people. Taking the Lord's name in vain, worshipping idols, this kind of thing, fell foul of the first table the commandments against murder, adultery, and theft were of the second table. In the Massachusetts Bay Colony, as we discussed last time, the church set the rules of morality, and the government enforced them. Williams agreed that the second table, dealing with people's interactions with other people, had to be enforced. After all, murder wasn't very nice. However, Williams strongly disagreed that the government had any right at all to enforce the first table of the Ten Commandments. For Williams, and I'm generalising here, if someone committed blasphemy or worshipped another deity but God, well, that was just hunky-dory. I mean, he thought they were wrong and would burn in hell and would try and convince them of the true religion, but it wasn't the government's, any government's, place to use state authority to enforce orthodoxy. This, Remarkably progressive outlook on toleration contrasted quite heavily with some of its other theological views, but more importantly, it was entirely against the function of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. As you recall, it existed solely to forge a truly godly society. Enforcing orthodoxy was entirely the point of the government. It's important to remember that Massachusetts was far from unique in this. Coios regio eius religio whose realm his religion, after all. So what Williams was arguing was borderline unprecedented. It was certainly too much for the Massachusetts leadership, and Williams was strongly urged to move on. Williams moved to Salem, where he once again was offered the position as a minister, but the colonial government back in Boston was wise to the danger of Williams. They firmly pressured the town of Salem to rescind the offer, and again, Williams moved on. He then migrated to Plymouth Colony, who were far more sympathetic to his views, but even this sympathy had limits. William Bradford described him as "...godly and zealous, but very unsettled in judgment. Apparently he was referring to Williams' rather concerning tendency to give a fig about the Native Americans. Williams was interested in learning the language of the indigenous people, forming a good relationship with Massasoit of the Wampanoag, and he would go on to write the first dictionary of their language. All well and good, after all, few would deny that knowing the language of the natives would help convert them to Christianity, which was, after all, one of the universal claims of almost all European colonisation, English or otherwise. They were there to Christianize the people. Problems began when William started to question why the English were there at all. Why, exactly, did an English king have the right to divide up the lands of the natives? He didn't rule there? Where was his right? Now, this was very dangerous ground, as you can imagine, and after two years in Plymouth, Williams moved back to Salem. Plymouth Colony sent a warning on to their neighbours, letting them know that Williams had developed some especially dangerous ideas. Back in Salem, he gained an ally in the former governor of the colony, John Endicott. From 1633 until 1635, As a lay preacher, Williams promoted the separation of his congregation from the Church of England, and from any other church that remained linked to the hated episcopacy. This included the other churches of Massachusetts Bay. Another idea, radical even to the Puritans, was that women should wear veils in church and at all public meetings. Famously, during his stay at Plymouth, St. George's Cross, the red and white ensign of England, was cut from the flag of the militia for being a papist symbol. Most sources I've seen state that it was Endicott who did the deed, though Richard Middleton, in his Colonial America, says it was Williams himself. Regardless, Endicott was reprimanded by the Massachusetts General Court for the act, or for not stopping the act if it wasn't him. The symbol was not papist, because if it was papist, Then it wouldn't be in use. Essentially, if Endicott was right to deface St. George's Cross, well, it it made everyone who hadn't defaced the cross look bad. More dangerous, though, were Williams' ideas about politics. His sympathy for the Indians appeared once again, writing a treatise arguing that Charles had no right to grant the lands the colonies now inhabited and further slandering the king. Going further, Williams advocated for a separation of church and state, and denied that the general court had any jurisdiction in religious matters. Middleton neatly sums it up, in effect, he was denying both the religious and political authority of the Puritan establishment. That Puritan establishment was not about to let this happen, The response of the colonial leadership was to try and muzzle Williams. They tried to persuade him that he was incorrect. This failed, although they did convince him that his treatise was a step too far, and Williams burnt the only copy himself. They tried to convince him to stop preaching his dangerous ideas. That also failed, and when the congregation in Salem was considering electing Williams to a church office, turning his lay preaching into official preaching, the leadership intervened and lobbied against it. This was the final straw for Williams, and he called for the complete separation of the Salem Church from its neighbours. Likewise, this was the final straw for the colonial leadership. In October 1635, Williams was banished by the General Court, overseen by Governor John Haynes, to be sent back to England as soon as he was well enough to travel. This, Mercy, ran out once Boston heard reports that Williams, despite apparently being ill, was still preaching his dangerous ideas, and so in January 1936 a sheriff was dispatched to carry out the sentence but Williams escaped. Winthrop, out of affection for Williams, and a dislike of Governor Haynes, sent the preacher a warning, and Williams fled into the winter snows. He was taken in by an indigenous community, one he'd bonded with during his time in the Americas, and here he sheltered until the spring. Now, this was not the end of Williams, however. Once the snows cleared, And alongside friends and family from Salem, Williams went south to Narragansett Bay. He bought a parcel of land from the Narragansett Sachems, Canonicus, and Miantonomo, and established the settlement of Providence. The Providence plantation would become a haven for religious dissidents for many years, openly advocating religious toleration. As the Massachusetts Bay Company struggled with Williams, another source of religious dissent came from within Boston itself. Here we come to Anne Hutchinson, who arrived in Boston in 1634. Hutchinson's approach to faith ran differently to the majority of Puritans, who, as we covered last time, focused on the process of being sanctified, experiencing the Holy Spirit, and in that way discovering that they had been saved. Hutchinson preferred to read the Bible, and feel the Holy Spirit through the scripture. While this was uncommon, it was far from unique, and Hutchinson could draw on the teachings of her brother-in-law, John Wheelwright, as well as her friend, John Cotton. After Cotton, as well as members of her family, emigrated to Massachusetts, Hutchinson decided to follow and she and her family arrived in September 1634, and by October she had joined the Boston Church. This was despite her irreverent attitude towards ministers who she didn't agree with. Very quickly, the Hutchinsons integrated into Boston society, her husband taking positions in the church and in the general court, while Anne's charisma was valued by the ministry for converting non-Puritans to the truth. Hutchinson could count on Henry Vane, who was elected governor in 1936 as one of her supporters, and this entanglement with colonial politics may mark the beginning of Hutchinson's problems. As I mentioned earlier, as well as last time, John Winthrop was still kicking around Boston. He had lost his governorship in 1635, and he lost it again to Vane the following year. Now, his personal papers depict Anne Hutchinson in a less-than-positive light, and her connection to his political rival might have something to do with this. Regardless of his own attitudes, though, a theological rift was growing between Boston and its neighbouring churches, as the antinomian controversy began.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: So, what was the antinomian controversy? Also known as the free grace controversy – It revolved around a growing faction within the Boston church, largely centered around Anne Hutchinson, John Cotton, and John Wheelwright, who had arrived in the colony in May 1636. Hutchinson had held regular meetings of dozens of people, initially just the women of the colony, but increasingly men and important men. At these meetings, Anne preached against those ministers who she believed were deceiving their congregations, hiding their sin and their lack of belief behind good works. Without getting into the weeds of the free grace controversy, because I'm not a divine, I'll simplify it by saying that Hutchinson was essentially accusing a number of Puritan ministers of preaching contrary to Puritan orthodoxy. It certainly didn't help matters that Hutchinson was a woman, and in this deeply patriarchal society she was just not playing by the rules. Theology was a matter for men. As Winthrop would later say at her trial, we do not mean to discourse with your sex. The threat posed by Hutchinson's theology was multifaceted. Firstly, her position that the godly had no need for spiritual guidance, for they were guided solely by God, was intolerable to any church organisation, even one as grassroots and decentralised as the New England Church. Secondly, as Middleton puts it, Hutchinson's beliefs implied that if salvation were predetermined, then logically no one need bother even to demonstrate the possession of faith. This view completely contradicted the Puritan emphasis on sanctification. The dispute festered for several months, and continued to escalate with sedition and other charges being thrown around. In May 1637, the theological battle became political, as the Hutchinson-supporting Vane was defeated in the election for governor by the resurgent John Winthrop. This took some political manoeuvring. Winthrop summoned the general court at Newtown, which is modern-day Cambridge, and here he was elected governor. The court was then purged of its two Boston deputies for their ties to the antinomian faction. Finally, the church elders convened, and reiterated that grace needed to be proven, and constantly lived up to, Now the board was set to remove Hutchinson, Wheelwright, and anyone who followed them. In November that year, matters came to a head. Wheelwright was charged with sedition and banished, and Hutchinson was taken to court on the same charge of sedition. Part of her trial testimony is reproduced in Middleton's Colonial America, and while it's a bit lengthy, I enjoy it so much, It really gives you an inkling of the type of woman Anne Hutchinson was, and how much she got under the skin of the men bringing her to trial. The Examination of Mrs. Hutchinson, November 1637 Governor Winthrop Mrs. Hutchinson, you are called here as one of those that have troubled the peace of the Commonwealth and the Churches here. You are known to be a woman that hath had a great share in the promoting and divulging of those, antinomian, opinions that are the causes of this trouble, and to be nearly joined, not only in affinity and affection with some of those the court had taken notice of and passed censure upon, but you have spoken diverse things, as we have been informed, very prejudicial to the honour of the churches and ministers thereof. And you have maintained a meeting and assembly in your house that hath been condemned by the General Assembly, as a thing not tolerable, nor comely in the sight of God, nor fitting for your sex. And notwithstanding that was cried down, you have continued the same. Therefore we have thought good to send for you, to understand how things are that if you be, in an erroneous way, we may reduce you so you may become a profitable member here among us. Otherwise, if you be obstinate in your course, that you may trouble us no further. Mrs. Hutchinson, I am called here to answer before you, but I hear no things laid to my charge. Winthrop, I have told you some already, and more I can tell you. Hutchinson, Name one, sir what have I done? Winthrop. Why, for your doings, this you did harbour and countenance those that are parties in this faction. Hutchinson. That's a matter of conscience, sir. Winthrop. Your conscience you must keep, or it must be kept for you. Hutchinson. Must not I then entertain the saints because I keep my conscience? Thomas Dudley, Deputy Governor. I would go a little higher with Mrs. Hutchinson. It appears by this woman's meeting that Mrs. Hutchinson hath so forestalled the minds of many, that she now hath a potent party in the country. Now, if all these things hath endangered us, and if she in particular hath disparaged all our ministers in the land, that they have preached a covenant of works, and only Mr. Cotton a covenant of grace, why, this is not to be suffered.' Hutchinson, I pray, sir, prove it, that I said they preach nothing but a covenant of works. Dudley, Nothing but a covenant of works, why a Jesuit may preach truth sometimes. Hutchinson again, Did I ever say they preached a covenant of works, then? Dudley, If they did not preach a covenant of grace, clearly, then they preach a covenant of works. Hutchinson, No, sir. One may preach a covenant of grace more clearly than another, so I said. If you please to give me leave, I shall give you the ground of what I know to be true. Being much troubled to see the falseness of the constitution of the Church of England, I had like to have turned separatist, whereupon I kept a day of solemn humiliation and pondering of the thing. The Lord was pleased to bring this scripture out of the Hebrews. He that denies the testament, denies the testator, and in this did open unto me, and give me to see, that those which did not teach the new covenant, had the spirit of Antichrist, and upon this he did discover the ministry unto me, and ever since, I bless the Lord, he hath let me see, which was the clear ministry, and which the wrong. Noel, a magistrate at the court, how do you know that? Hutchinson, how did Abraham know it was God that bid him offer his son, being a breach of the Sixth Commandment? Dudley? By an immediate voice. Hutchinson? So to me, by an immediate revelation. That final exchange was Hutchinson declaring that God had spoken to her directly and that God had given her the ability to tell when a ministry was false or when it was true. This was too much for Winthrop and Co., especially when Hutchinson prophesied the colony's destruction if she was punished. This threat was not heeded. After a winter under house arrest, Hutchinson followed her brother-in-law into banishment in March 1638. The Hutchinsons, and many of Anne's followers, became neighbours to Roger Williams, who had founded Providence Plantation the year before. They purchased a plot of land from Native Americans with Williams' aid, and established a colony on Rhode Island. The shared experience of persecution, and the danger posed by their larger and more powerful neighbours, kept ties between Providence Plantation and the colonies on Rhode Island close, until their eventual unification in the 1640s as the colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Anne Hutchinson would not live to see that unification, however. After the death of her husband, and fearing that Massachusetts would annex her new home, she fled to a region of modern New York State, then claimed by the Dutch and contested by local Indians. The Americans warned her to stay away, but Hutchinson received revelation from reading the scripture, and was convinced that God would protect her. Anne Hutchinson, along with 15 of her family, were killed in an attack by those same Native Americans in 1633. Providence was not limited to the mainland, however far to the south, in the tropical climate of the Caribbean, lies a small volcanic island just over a 100 miles from modern Nicaragua. On Christmas Eve 1629, the former governor of Bermuda, Philip Bell, landed on its shores to pray. He described the island as utterly beautiful, and named it Providence. The Spanish, who had already claimed it, called it Catalina. The settlement of Providence Island brought together several figures who will be very important in upcoming episodes. Twenty Puritan lords and gentlemen had gathered at the London home of Lord Brooke, Robert Greville, in 1630. Among their number was Robert Rich, Earl of Warwick, who had been part of the colonisation of Virginia and Bermuda. The secretary of the Providence Island Company was John Pym, who has appeared in Pax Britannica before. A staunch defender of parliamentary rights and a long-time opponent of the late Duke of Buckingham, Pym will be a very familiar name for the next few months. Together, they established the Providence Island Company. From the start, the company had a crusading drive. They drew on the tales and legends of the Elizabethan heroes of the Protestant cause, Sir Walter Raleigh, Sir Francis Drake, Sir John Hawkins, and the others who fought the First Battle of the Atlantic. They had shown God's displeasure with the Spaniards, they had burned and pillaged and raided the greatest Catholic Empire the world has ever seen, and brought wealth and glory to England. Those days were long gone, but they could return. That was the hope, the dream, of the men who met in Brock House in summer 1630 much like their co-religionists who had emigrated to New England. These men saw the economic downturn, the spread of plague, and the myriad of real and imagined woes of England as proof that Charles had lost God's favour. While the Massachusetts Bay Company established itself to be a city on a hill, an example of godly society, the Providence Island Company intended to show they had God's favour and the Catholics did not, with fire and sword. From the very beginning, the strategic benefits of Providence Island were highlighted. It was dotted with natural harbours, and it was ideally positioned for raids on Spanish shipping and Spanish colonial holdings. In their request for a royal charter, the company described the island as convenient to receive a fleet that has any design on any leeward part of the Indies or Cartagena Portobello, the Bay of Honduras, Hispaniola, Cuba, or Jamaica. The natural currents and winds of the Caribbean forced ships leaving Cuba to pass close to the island, making them easy pickings, in theory, for English privateers. Of course, the greatest prize would be the floater, the annual treasure fleet. All this convinced Charles and a patent was granted on the 4th of December 1630 for the Company of Adventurers of the City of Westminster for the Plantation of the Islands of Providence or Catalina, Henrietta or Andrea. Even when they disagreed with their king, there was a certain way of doing things, hence the Royal Charter, and hence the traditional sycophancy of naming geographic locations after the royal family. Providence Island had a nearby sister, which the Spanish named San Andrea, but the fervently anti-Catholic Puritans named after the Catholic Queen, Henrietta Maria. In return for the Charter, Charles would collect the traditional one-fifth of the company's profits. None of the company leaders actually intended to make these profits, or wield the sword, or set the fires of Protestant victory themselves, They were gentlemen, for goodness sake. Paul Lay, in his wonderful book, Providence Lost, The Rise and Fall of Cromwell's Protectorate, describes them rather aptly as armchair adventurers. They were full of grand ideas, but they were much happier to persuade others to do the actual hard work. They insisted on remaining the sole owners of the island, despite the obvious benefits of giving the settlers a reason to see the colony succeed. The aims of the company leadership, to establish a godly community whose only interaction with Catholic Spain was at the point of a sword, was counterproductive. Lay puts it nicely. The rigid attitudes and ideologies espoused by the stay-at-home adventurers and their Puritan peers were those of men far from the realities and compromises of life among the merchants of the Americas. Prophetic political perfectionists seeking providential signs of God's working, rather than pragmatists seeking profit. As was apparent to English colonists already in the Caribbean, for small island colonies to flourish, or in some cases to just survive, they had to trade with other colonies, be they English or otherwise despite the Madrid government never condoning it, their Caribbean colonies traded regularly with Dutch and English interlopers. They were just far too distant, and pragmatism won out. That's not to say that none of the settlers of Providence shared the ideals of their benefactors. Many did, and were frustrated that realism had spread its pragmatic roots through their foundations. Tobacco – despised by many godly as a danger to the bodies and manners of the English people, became the staple export of the island, as it had elsewhere. Worse was the arrival of an even more pernicious trade, that of slavery. Enslaved Africans arrived soon after the settlers, and the Puritans back in England were appalled. Not out of any concern for the people themselves, of course, any non-Christian souls could be enslaved without worry. No, the stay-at-home adventurers feared that a reliance on enslaved labour would remove the need for the self-reliance, which was a key part of any godly community. Nevertheless, Providence would be the first English colony to have more enslaved inhabitants than free. It would not be the last. The moral objectives of the colony were compromised further by the need for security. If the company leadership wanted the island to become a fortress of Protestantism, then they would need men to man that fortress and sail the ships. It was more important that these men knew how to sail and knew how to kill than it was that they shared the morals of the Puritans. All this meant tensions in the colony. In 1633, one of the initial investors in the plantation wrote to Governor Bell, saying, We well hoped, according to our intention, that we had planned a religious colony on the Isle of Providence, instead whereof we find the root of bitterness plentifully planted amongst you. The colony would survive for just over a decade, and we will return to the Caribbean to cover its fate in a future episode. Next week, we will return to the east coast of America to cover the founding of Maryland, as well as the settlement of Connecticut. We will see how the tensions in the area, between the Narragansett and the Pequot, and between the Pequot and the English, erupted into a war of extermination. Thank you, as always, to my House of Lords. The King's favourite, Andrew Shoemaker, the Royal Headsman, executed today the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Marquess of Hereford, Christopher Remo, the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz. Newly joining the peerage is the Earl of Dorset, Thomas Kessler, and Veronica, Viscountess Sixsmith. If you'd like to join their ranks and get an ad-free feed, please go to patreon.com slash Of course, the podcast is on Twitter and Facebook, links to which you'll find in the episode description. Thanks to Sounds Like an Earful for the intermission music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.